Well, miscalculations can have some pretty grave consequences. I don't know if any of you remember the Mars Climate Orbiter. Does that ring a bell for anybody? 1998, 1999, it was a 327.6 million, sorry, not billion, but million-dollar program that, that NASA put together. And they were going to launch this satellite that was going to orbit Mars, hence the name, Mars Climate Orbiter. And it was going to take readings from the climate of the, the planet Mars and, and give us weather readings from the planet. But the problem is, as they were constructing this satellite, at some point, they got confused between whether they were using metric measurements or imperial measurements. And as that began to get mixed up and get confused, there were miscalculations made that went into the construction and the, uh, the, the design of this satellite such that when it was launched and it got out to Mars, it went to try to orbit around Mars but cut it too close and ended up disintegrating and burning up in the atmosphere and there went 327.6 million dollars. Or then there's the, the Vasa warship which was a Swedish warship back in the 1600s. And in 1628, the the Vasa warship set out on its maiden voyage only to sink less than a mile into this initial trip, into this maiden voyage. And when later, much later, and and now you can actually go to Sweden, somebody was there last night who had gone and seen the ship. It's it's been raised from the depths. When you go there and you look at the ship, you can see that there's an asymmetrical element to the ship because what happened is, there was a group of constructors, construction workers that was building the, the left side of the ship and a different group that was building the right side of the ship. And the group building the left side of the ship was operating off of the Swedish foot, which is 12 inches. But the group on the right side of the ship was operating off of the Amsterdam foot, which is 11 inches. And so the, the ship was off center. It had different thicknesses of its, of its sides and everything else on, on either side of the ship. But add to that the fact that the the designer wanted it to be one of the tallest ships that was ever created. And so when it was sent out, the whole thing just did this and and down it went. And yet the the cost of that miscalculation, it wasn't $327.6 million, but it was 30 lives plus all of the military equipment, the 60 cannon plus uh, other weapons and, and materials on board that then all of a sudden sunk to the bottom of the ocean there. And then in 2014, and this is perhaps my favorite miscalculation of all, France decided for one of its railway systems to order 2,000 new trains. The problem is when these 2,000 new trains showed up to be put into service, they found that they were too wide for the track that they were supposed to go on. 2,000 new trains, all of a sudden you're ordering another 2,000 new trains with proper calculations. See, it's important for us to make sure that we're on the right path. It's important for us to make sure that, that we are always checking in and making sure, okay, is this, am, I, am I doing things right? Am I making the proper calculations here? Am I on the, the course that I need to be on? Because as we've seen with just these three examples, and there's plenty more, miscalculations can have a, an enormous cost in our lives. And for us as men of God, we want to make sure that we are on God's path, that we have calculated correctly and continue to check in and continue to calibrate all throughout our our lives, that we are leading the way that God wants us to lead, that we are walking in step with the will of God. David was a man who led this way. We saw that even last week as we looked at the, the contrast between him and the Amalekite. And then we looked at the fact that his fear of God was so strong and so powerful that it led other men to also fear God as well. That it rubbed off on the, the men around him as they joined him mourning 
for Saul, who had been their avowed enemy, who previously they had wanted to put to death. And then we saw David's lament over Saul and the death of Saul and what it meant for Israel because of what it meant for the the reputation of God and his passion for God. So we see that the David is this type of leader that is constantly in tune, at least to this point in our story, with, with God's will, God's direction, God's plan. He's always checking in, make sure that he's calibrating things with the Lord. So we come to 2 Samuel chapter 2 this morning and we pick up in verse 1. It says, after this, after this lament, after this, this mourning period, this grieving for Saul and Jonathan and Israel, after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And the Lord said to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of, of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him and everyone with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. We expect what happens in these first four verses of 2 Samuel chapter 2. Saul is dead. David has mourned for Saul. Israel needed direction. There was no more opposition anymore. Saul was gone and, and it, it seemed like it was just the, the clear path for David to go and become the next king. He had been anointed by Samuel. He was the king in waiting. This was the logical conclusion. Israel had been scattered. They had just been defeated by the Philistines. They needed a voice of leadership that was there. David had seen God's hand of favor upon him time and time and time again. He was the divinely ordained, logical, reasonable, assumed successor of the throne. So we would say, okay, David, go and take it. But that's not what David does, is it? David didn't rush off under the assumption that he knew God's plan, that he knew God's timing, that he knew God's will. Instead, as we look at 2 Samuel 2, verse 1, what does it say? After this, David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. He was there again calibrating himself to the will of God, making sure that he was in step with God's will. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up? Is now the time into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David didn't assume that he had everything figured out. He didn't let his evaluation of his circumstances lead him to get out in front of God on this matter. He still remained as, as sure of a thing as it appeared to everyone there, and it did appear that way to, to everyone there. He still first sought the Lord's will. In fact, he, he is persistent with it. Even after God says, yes, go up, David wants to, to be absolutely sure that he's lockstep with God, and so he inquires again. He says, okay, which city do you want me to go to then? And the Lord said to Hebron, See, David's humility and his patience and his longing to be in step with God's will is, is commendable. It's something that, that we as men, as leaders, should, should strive to emulate as well. It's far too easy for us to lead by assumption rather than by confirmed conviction that we are aligned with God's will. That's point number one for us this morning. No matter how certain the outcome may seem, always seek the Lord's will before acting. Always seek the Lord's will before acting. We can fall into some dangerous traps when we assume things, can't we? Back in 2016, there was a small election that took place in this country. And on the eve of, and in fact in all the weeks leading up to the election, there was an assumption that somebody was going to win the election, wasn't there? 
everybody was, was just ready to anoint her as the next president of the United States, right? But then as the, the poll results started rolling in, as the election results started rolling in, you, you saw some news outlets excited and you saw some other news outlets just absolutely devastated that what they had assumed to be the outcome was not going to actually be the outcome. Sometimes things happen that aren't what the assumed outcome is going to be. Like in 2011, when I, as a Texas Rangers fan, knew for sure that my Texas Rangers were going to be the 2011 World Series champions. In fact, I was so sure of the assumed outcome that I woke my son up, who was then at the time two years old, from his bedtime late at night to come and sit and watch history take place. The Texas Rangers win their first World Series, and that didn't happen. But I wasn't the only one that was sure of that. In fact, the Rangers were down to one strike away, not once, but twice in that game. The locker room for the Texas Rangers had the, the, the plastic sheeting over the lockers and the champagne wheeled into the locker room. They were ready to celebrate. But then David Freeze and Nelson Cruz happened, and my sports dreams were shattered forever. See, we know, all of us, and you all have those stories, maybe not about the Rangers, but about something in your life where you said, this is, this is a for sure thing. I know that this is going to happen. And then something went wrong. Something went haywire. All of us understand what it is to act on some of these assumed outcomes, only to have things go in an unexpected direction. Sometimes it's that we just assume we know what God's will is. And so we don't bother praying. We don't bother going and seeking godly counsel. We just act based on what we presume, what we assume to be God's will, only to find out that, that in reality, that's not really what he had planned for us after all. Other times, we're just paying attention to our own wisdom and to the wisdom of the world around us. And we're locked into what our desires are, our ambitions are. And so we really don't even give a second thought or consideration at all to what God's will may be in the matter. And all of a sudden, that assumed outcome goes in a different direction. Again, one that we weren't expecting. So how can we guard against making this mistake? How can we make sure that we are men who are always seeking the Lord's will before acting? Well, a couple things. Number one, we need to first ask, what does the Bible say about this situation? What does God's word have to say? Is there anything about my plans, my desires, my ambitions that's not biblical? that would lead me to sin or compromise? What does the Bible say? The second thing that we need to do is we need to pray. And I understand that sounds pretty simple, pretty basic, pretty obvious, but it's important. And it's not something that we can rush through or overlook. It's something that we need to do diligently. In fact, we need to pray this way. Number one, we need to pray specifically. Not just God grant me wisdom, but what do you need wisdom for? Get into the details of your plan with the Lord. Pray specifically for his wisdom in specific situations, in specific ways. Second, pray for God to stop you if this isn't his will. Pray for opposition at every turn if, if this is not part of his will. Pray for him to make it absolutely abundantly clear to you, slam door in the face, smacking you in the nose when it shuts, that he doesn't want you moving in that direction. And you say, well, that's kind of a funny prayer to pray. Yes, but at the same time, we should all say, if this isn't God's will, I don't want to be going in that direction. And so we need to pray, God, if this is not your will, stop me in this. 
Give me that opposition that's going to stop me, that's going to slow me down, that's going to turn me. Next, pray for God to reveal any ulterior motives, ungodly motives that you might be harboring. Maybe some of these are ones that you haven't even thought about, but pray for him that that he would bring those to the surface. If you're in this for any other reason than his glory, than his honor primarily, pray for him to, to bring that to mind, to reveal that to you. And then finally, pray for God to surround you with godly counsel. Pray for God to surround you with godly counsel. So we need to to consult the Bible, we need to pray, and then finally we need to involve others. And that builds off that last prayer that we just talked about, pray for godly counsel. Well, now we need to take advantage of godly counsel. Ask for prayer for these same things from other brothers in your small group. Ask them to pray these, these ways for you. Ask them to pray specifically for you. Talk through your plans with other believers. Lay everything out on the table and say, this is how I feel like I'm putting the puzzle pieces together. But if you see something else in here, help me figure this out. Ask for input from them. And be willing to finally adjust course and to change your plans. Be willing to adjust course and to change your plans if it finds that with, with all of these things that your plans are not necessarily in line with what God's will might be for you at that time. It's the type of leadership that we see in David. But then we see that that something happens in the midst of this. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, he takes Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him the king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. See, things were going pretty well in the south. David had consulted the Lord. The Lord said, yes, go into Hebron. David went into Hebron, and he was anointed king in Hebron. And then sometime after that, we find this man named Abner come into the picture. Abner should be a familiar character for us. Abner was Saul's right-hand man, his bodyguard. Now, where was Abner when Saul and Jonathan died in battle? I have no idea where Abner was, but apparently he wasn't there. But now Abner, as he's looking around the scene, comes back on the the picture for us in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Abner was actually not just Saul's bodyguard, but in 1 Samuel 14, 50, we learn that he was Saul's cousin. He was Saul's cousin. He He was a kinsman of Saul, and he was the commander of his army. He was there when David slayed Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, 55. Abner was there and had a seat at the king's table in 1 Samuel 20, verse 25. And then, uh, as I mentioned, he was Saul's personal bodyguard. 1 Samuel 26, when David goes into the camp with Abishai, Abner is laying on the ground right next to Saul when he had the opportunity to kill him. In fact, Abner is the one that David called out to. Abner, what were you doing? Were you sleeping? And now that Saul was dead, Abner's loyalty to Saul remained. See, Abner was going to see, at, at whatever the cost, a descendant of Saul take the throne. And it was, a, I think, a grab at power, a grab at prestige. But more than anything, I think this was Abner trying to preserve his life. Abner was the right hand of the enemy of David. And so as Abner's looking around, he's thinking to himself, well, I've got two choices here. We can go and join David down in Judah, but I don't know what will happen to my life. Or maybe we can set up one of Saul's descendants who can hold on to the Saulite throne and, and I can continue in the role that I had before. And so that's what he does. He goes to this place called Mahanaim and he installs Ishbosheth. 
Now, who is Ishbosheth? Well, we don't know a whole lot about this man, except he's mentioned briefly here in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and chapter 4, and also he's mentioned over in the book of uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 8 and chapter 9. He was the youngest of Saul's sons. And so as Abner surveys the scene, apparently this is the best option that's left. And so he grabs Ishbosheth and he installs him. But Ishbosheth, we learn from 1 Chronicles chapter 8 and chapter 9, had formerly gone by the name Esh Baal. Now, Baal is the, the, the false god, right? And Esh means fire. So his name previously meant fire of Baal. Now, that's not a great name for an Israelite king to have, is it? So his name is eventually changed to Ishbosheth. And that's not much of an improvement because Ishbosheth means man of shame. So he went from fire of Baal, a false god, to man of shame. And he's installed as, as king by Abner. And Abner installs him as king in this area called Mahanaim. And you can see it up here on the, the map, the, the top circle here. This is Mount Gilboa. What happened at Mount Gilboa? Yes, this is where the battle raged. This is where Saul and Jonathan were found dead. You remember David curses the mountains of Gilboa because of the fact that this is where they died. This is Mahanaim, and it's over here. Where do you notice geographically that this is located? Across the Jordan. And that's, that's not insignificant. And there's, there's some human reasons why this is taking place, because this area right here was, was being overrun by the Philistines right now. So this was not a safe area for Israel. But what's more is this area over here was, was this part of God's promised land for his people. No, it wasn't. Remember the whole story of crossing the Jordan to enter into the promised land? And so here we find Abner and we find the northern tribes of Israel, which is what it means when he reigned over all Israel, the tribes to the north. Now, they're, they're so far out of step with God's will. They're so far offline with calculating and being calibrated with God's will that now it's, it's significant that geographically they're even not even in the promised land anymore. And again, from an earthly perspective, they went there because they could regroup there. It was a safe place for them to land and to rebuild and to regroup. But this is not, this is not right. This is not what, what God's desire was for things. And so the, the big picture we have here, you've got, again, this is where to the north, Mount Gilboa, where David and found, learned that, that Jonathan and, and Saul had died. And then you have Mahanaim, and this is where Ishbosheth now is installed as king. And then down here, you've got Hebron, and that's where David is. So that's our political landscape in Israel right now. It's not a, exactly what God had in mind when he told David, hey, David, you're going to be the next king. Now, is this outside of the realm of God's sovereignty? Not at all. Did God ordain these things to take place? Yes, he did. But still, for David, this must have presented a big problem. David's sitting there going, okay, I've inquired of the Lord, I've mourned for, I've done everything right, and now I'm the king down here in Judah, and things are going well, but then all of a sudden he learns that there's a rival king in Israel. For David, this was unforeseen, unexpected opposition, and I know all of us have run into unforeseen, unexpected opposition in life. And at that point, we have a couple of options. We can stay the course and persevere, or we can jump ship. We can allow opposition to derail us. But as men of God, if we have done point one, and that is if we have made sure that we have sought the Lord's will, 
And then we've acted on what we believe and we feel that, that firm conviction and others have confirmed with us and we've prayed about. If we act on that, we feel like, yes, we are lockstep with God's will and then we encounter opposition. What do we do? It's point number two for us this morning. It's this, we have to stay the course and trust the Lord's plan. Stay the course and trust the Lord's plan. Again, all the while, making sure that we're, we're calibrating. Are we, are, we, are we lockstep with God's will here? Are we lockstep with God's will here? If we feel like we are, if it's been con- we have the conviction that we are, we need to stay the course and trust the Lord's plan in spite of opposition. Anybody know the name Harlan David Sanders? The colonel, right? Kentucky Fried Chicken. Did you know that he, when he first set out with his fried chicken recipe, tried to sell it to over a thousand restaurants before he found a buyer? That's perseverance, isn't it? That's staying the course. How about Walt Disney? Did you know that Walt Disney once worked for the Kansas City Star? And at one point, the Kansas City Star fired Walt Disney. Do you know what his editor told him when he fired him? You're not creative enough and you don't have any good ideas. It's a true story. It was told to Walt Disney. Now, we know the rest of the story, don't we? As we live in the the shadow of Disneyland. Walt stayed the course. How about Elvis Presley? Elvis Presley was fired by the manager of the Grand Ole Opry after one show. And here's what the manager told him, quote, You ain't going nowhere, son. You ought to go back to driving a truck. But we know the rest of that story, right? And so if these men had, had given up when they faced opposition, you wouldn't have fried chicken, Disneyland, or you ain't nothing but a hound dog. And our world would be drastically different, wouldn't it? See, here's the thing. Every leader faces opposition, but godly leaders persevere through it. They stay the course, trusting that the Lord is sovereign even over the obstacles that they face. Again, if you have sought the Lord's will and you are confident that the Lord is with you in a decision or a chosen path, keep pressing on in spite of the opposition that might arise. Keep trusting God's timing in his plans. What are some of the ways that we face opposition as leaders today? Well, we can face financial opposition. That can come through a job, that can come through our family. We can run into times when Times are, are tight and we don't know where the next paycheck is coming from. We don't know where our, our company's next job is going to come from. And we can be tempted to look elsewhere. We can be tempted to compromise. We can be tempted to shift direction from God's plan. We can face relationship opposition, whether that's family or whether that's relationships with, with coworkers, whether that's y- your marriage. And then, of course, we can face spiritual opposition. Paul said the battle that we wage is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces, right? So what do we do when we encounter opposition? What should our response be? Well, first, we need to pray. Again, that seems like low-hanging fruit, but guys, it's important. We have to be men of prayer. Second, we need to seek counsel and wisdom from others. Hey, this is what I'm up against. Can you help me? Evaluate things. This is, these are my thoughts on this, but I'd love a second set of eyes on this problem. Third, examine yourself. Check to see if there's any unconfessed or unrepentant sin in your life. Because it may be that even though, yes, you are on the path that's 
on, on the, the direction towards God's will that this is a, a period of discipline that God's bringing into your life. To refine, to correct, to, to, to purge the, the dross from your life. Next, keep doing what you know is right. Keep doing what you know is right. And, and those are the times where we can't see beyond the valley. We can't see out of the fog. We, don't, we wake up those mornings and we don't know which way is up. But we do know that, that we can keep doing what we know is right. If you're familiar with the musician Stephen Curtis Chapman, a while back he wrote an album called Beauty Will Rise. And it was basically the, the theological reflections and lessons that he learned after the death of one of his daughters. And if you don't know that story, what happened is his son got in the, the car to, to go somewhere, and as he was backing out of the driveway, hit his three-year-old daughter and ran over her and killed her. It's a complete accident. But as Stephen Curtis Chapman and his whole family, obviously you can imagine the, the, just the anguish they wrestled with that. The, the, the result and the thoughts that came out of that are inform what I think is one of the most theologically deep musical albums that, that exist out there. Beauty Will Rise by Stephen Curtis Chapman. If you haven't listened to it, listen to it. And if you're a dad, buckle up. But in that, there's a song called Take Another Step. And in that song, he's talking about what we're talking about right here. When you encounter that opposition where it just it feels like it's totally derailing you. And you look around, you're like, okay, God, I, I don't see any sin. I don't see any place where I'm out of step with you. I don't see that I'm disobedient right now. W what do I do? And the song just says, take another step, take another step. Trust God and take another step. And sometimes that's all we can do during these times of opposition. We keep doing what we know is right, what we know is obedient to the Lord. And we keep trusting that he will eventually lead us out of the valley. And so we keep doing what is right. Finally, we need to have the humility to bend on the non-essentials. If opposition is coming on the peripheral of this plan, on the peripheral of what we're doing in life here, and there's things that we can cut off or drop, dead weight that we can lose that's gonna make it easier to move forward, then let's drop the dead weight and move forward. Leadership and opposition are indeed inseparable. But if you've sought the Lord's will and you're convinced that you're where God wants you, then stay the course and trust in him. After this comes this inevitable war between the house of David and the house of Saul. And Joab, who's David's version of Abner, Joab and, and Abner meet together. And what they do is they send 12 on 12. They, send you, they say, you send your best 12 and I'll send my best 12. And these 12 meet together on the battlefield and in, in a very bizarre scene, they all kill each other. And so 24 are dead. And after that, it's, it's every, every man against every other man. And so the forces rise up and they do battle. And eventually in the course of this battle, the, the house of David starts to beat back the house of Saul. Joab's forces start to overtake Abner's forces. And one of the men in Joab's forces was this man named Ashael who happened to also be Joab's brother. And Ashael starts to take off in pursuit of Abner. And Ashael has it fixed in his mind that he's gonna overtake and kill Abner. And he's running after him and he's running after him and he's running after him and finally Abner looks behind him and he sees Ashael coming up behind him and he, he looks back and he sees the young man and he recognizes him and he says to him and he calls out to him and he says, hey, turn aside and take one of these others. It's almost humorous at that point. Hey, stop and kill one of these other peons. 
Why should you keep chasing me? And I think this is Abner, again, we think of Abner, and I I don't think Abner gets a lot of positive light. I think this is an example of of Abner in positive light here. He's calling out to Ashael over and over and over again, warning him, turn aside, turn aside, turn aside. Ashael really had no business chasing Abner. Abner is a mighty warrior. He saw his bodyguard for a reason. And so as, as Ashael is, is pursuing him, Abner is calling back to him, turn aside, don't do this. Take somebody else. But Ashael wouldn't be deterred, and so Abner does what he can only do at that point, and he takes his spear and he shoves it behind him and runs Ashael straight through the gut, and Ashael drops dead on the spot. Well, Joab and Joab's brother come up and, and find, Joab and Abishai come up and find Abner, or excuse me, come up and find their, their brother Ashael, and they don't take well to that, and so they take up the pursuit at that point of Joab, or of Abner. And it, eventually Abner gets to a place where he can turn around from safety and, and call out to Joab, and it's, it's really one of the most tragic scenes in this whole account, because Abner is calling out to Joab, and he says, can we just put an end to the bloodshed of brother against brother? And it's, it, it really is a pain, it's a tragic, it's a, it's a horrible scene to see that this is Israelite against Israelite. This is God's people at war with God's people. Brother against brother, family member against family member, countrymen against countrymen. And, and Abner finally says, enough, can we finally just put an end to this? And Joab and Abishai finally agree and they go back, but you can imagine that they kept in mind, in fact, we'll see that they kept in mind that they weren't done with Abner. And then we come to chapter three, and in verse one it says, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. I think Pastor Mike brought that out when he preached our opening message for us. So the verses like this are significant because the action is so fast-paced for us as we're reading through this, as we're studying it, that we miss that there's at least two years that Ishbosheth is reigning where this war is raging. And so this is not a, a, a quick rapid-fire serial event that's taken place. This is a protracted, long, drawn-out battle and war. And at one point in this, Abner returns back to Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth goes to Abner and, and makes a grave error because he goes to Abner and he accuses Abner of doing something. He accuses Abner of sleeping with one of Saul's concubines. And the problem with that is if Abner had actually done that, that would have been an atrocious and audacious power play by Abner. He would have been usurping Ishbosheth. He would have been heaping shame upon Ishbosheth in a very public manner. And so when Abner is accused of this, Abner takes offense, and rightly so. And I think we see Abner's innocence because of Abner's reaction. Abner just doesn't say, How dare you, and then go home. Abner says, How dare you? And then he says, You know what? I'm done with you. I'm going to David. And so Abner leaves and literally walks into the hands of the enemy in order to clear his name. See, I I, I think Abner gets a little bit too much of a bad rap in the pages of scripture here. I don't know that Abner is such a bad guy. Abner's a man of integrity. And so Abner's ready to go back to David. And David says, hey, I'll take you back. But hey, on your way, I, I used to have a wife. Her name's Michael. Saul robbed her took her back from me. Could you send her my way? And then, you know what? Yeah, come on back and we'll see about getting uh, this Ishbosheth problem taken care of. And so Abner goes and finds Michael, Saul's daughter, David's former wife or current wife in a very weird 
love triangle, and brings her back to David. And, and it's a, another tragic scene because this poor man who was married to her, that had her as his wife for so long, is now weeping as she's being taken back to David until he gets to Abner. And Abner says, go home. And apparently he did. But Abner shows up. And, and Abner makes this, this alliance with David, enters into this agreement with David to see David installed as the rightful king. And it's, it's interesting as we read the text that Abner knew that David was the rightful king. He mentions it a couple times. In fact, even when he goes back to the elders of Israel, he says, look, you've been longing for David to be your king. You knew that David was supposed to be the rightful king. So Abner was wrong in installing Ishbosheth, And Abner knows that. And now he's coming to the point where he's ready to be done with that whole experiment of rebellion and he wants to come back and see David installed as the right king and so he goes back and he he entreats David's favor and David agrees but then Joab comes back and finds out about it and remember Abner had killed Joab's brother and so we pick up in verse 26 of chapter 3 when Joab came out from David's presence he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah but David did not know about it And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashael, his brother. Notice David's response here. If we think that this is a just or a righteous killing, we're about to be corrected from David. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. David publicly curses Joab for what Joab does. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashael to death in the battle at Gibeon. Last week, we saw a contrast between David and the Amalekite. This week, I want us to see the contrast between David and Joab. David and Joab. David, time and time again, had opportunity to what? To kill Saul, right? And we talked about that last week, that we could have even seen how David would have been justified in doing that. Even with self-defense would have been justified in doing that. And yet he wouldn't do it. He didn't allow his own will, his own agenda, his own, his own seeking for self-justification and vengeance to, to take over him. And you may say, well, that was because Saul was the anointed one. Okay, fine. Let's go to 1 Samuel 25. What happens there? David and Nabal, right? And Nabal refuses to give food to David and his men. And David gets angry and he's ready to go kill Nabal. David's Joab at that point. But then Abigail comes and falls before David and pleads with him. And she actually tells him, she says, don't do this lest the blood guilt of Nabal, a man whose name fits him, a fool, fall upon you. So she's telling David, don't make this mistake. This is wrong. This is sinful for you to do this. And David feels the weight of conviction. And David repents and David relents from his pursuit of Nabal and doesn't go and put him to death. And so we see the contrast between David, a man who was truly a man after God's own heart, a man who was lockstep with the the will of God. And we see the contrast between Joab, a man who was bloodthirsty and out for revenge. But did Joab have the right for revenge? Think back to the death of Ashael. I mean, not only did Abner call out to him and say, hey, turn aside, turn aside, turn aside. But what was the context? What was happening when Ashael died? It was war. It was a battle. 
Asherah was a soldier who died in battle. That happens. And not that Joab and and Abishai shouldn't have felt grief over the death of their brother, but they didn't have the right to take matters into their own hand and to murder, which is all that happened to Abner, to murder Abner as a result. God was not in that at all. That was Joab seeking his own will, his own glory, his own personal vengeance with no consideration whatsoever for the Lord in that. So again, we see the contrast between David and Joab. And it leads us to our final point this morning. It's this, we as men who lead after God's own heart need to submit our agenda to the Lord's agenda. The idea here overlaps a little bit with our first point tonight, that we need to seek his will in everything. Yes, that's how we begin to submit our agenda to his agenda, but it goes further than that. Because this point involves being willing to set aside our own will, our own plans, our own ambitions that are not aligned with God's plans, with God's will for our lives. How do we do this? Well, let's start by asking ourselves a series of questions. First, we can ask ourselves, what am I really after here? What am I really after here? Am I after the name and glory of the Lord or the name and glory of myself? Second, we can ask, can I tell you how my agenda will specifically serve to glorify God? How is this going to specifically serve to glorify God? And not the whole like, well, you know, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do everything for the glory of God, so I'm doing this for the glory of God. Okay, how? Third, have I considered every possible alternative Have I considered every possible alternative? Fourth, have I prayed about every possible alternative? Next, have I sought the counsel of others, providing all the information necessary? Again, earlier I said when we seek the counsel of others, we need to lay all the pieces on the table. And yeah, we can say this is how I see them fitting together, but we can't hold pieces back. We can't hold things back that we know might reveal that we've got ulterior motives here. We need to put everything on the table. Seeking the counsel of others. Finally, have I allowed time, time to reconsider the circumstances and to consider whether or not I've drawn the right conclusions? Y'all, I I understand sometimes we make decisions on the fly and we don't have a whole lot of time to push back from the table and, and, and... ask ourselves all of these questions, but we need to be men who are habitually asking ourselves these questions so that it's not something that we have to do in a reactive manner, but that we are proactively walking through life, making decisions by seeking God's will in these ways. You know, I think there's a lot of when Paul says that we need to be men who are praying without ceasing. That doesn't mean that in the morning you say, dear God, and you don't say amen until you fall asleep at night. It means that you're living in a constant state of dependence on the Lord, mindful that you need him, that you need his wisdom, that you need his counsel for everything in your life, every decision that you make in in your life, so that we should fall into a a routine habitually of of seeking the Lord's guidance. It, It needs to be second nature to us. Consider Joab as we talk about these things. What was Joab's agenda? Revenge. Why was Joab after revenge? The death of his brother who had died in battle 
Was Joab seeking the glory in the name of the Lord? No. Was Joab seeking his own glory and satisfaction? Yes. Did Joab seek godly counsel at any point in this? No. In fact, we know that if he had, maybe things would have been different. Because David, not only in the section that we read, but then after this, David actually mourns for Joab, or for Abner. David mourns for Abner. And, and so we know if Joab had gone to David and said, hey, David, this is what happened to my brother. What do you think I should do in this circumstance? David would have provided him with godly counsel that would have said, stop it, right? This is not in line with God's will. Don't do this. Don't seek your own glory in this circumstance. You know what happens if you give a nine-year-old allowance and let him loose in a toy store? I do, by personal experience on this. He's going to go around to, to the, the toys in the toy store, and the first thing he's going to do is he's going to look at all the toys that he can't afford. He's going he's gonna to say, hey, Dad, can I get this? Can I get this? Can I get this? Can I get this? No, no son, you don't, you don't have enough money to get that. Next thing he's going to do is he's going to say, well, how much money do I have? And you'll explain that to him. And then what he's going to do is he's going to search the whole store and see everything that he really can afford, and he's going to be disappointed. But then he's going to re- come to the realization, well, I've got to walk out of here with something. So he's going to pick up something that's not worth the packaging that it was packaged in. And he's going to bring it to you. He's going to say, Dad, I've, I've always wanted this. Can I buy this? And you're going to look at him and you're going to say, Son, I don't know that that's the wisest use of your money. And he's going to say, I know, but, I, but this is something I've always wanted since I walked into this store five minutes ago. And you're going to say, Yes, but if, if you saved your money, then you could come back at a later time and buy something that you really did want. But here's the deal. When a nine-year-old walks into a toy store with money in his pocket, he has one agenda. Spend that money. Spend that money. He doesn't have the foresight or the wisdom to be able to step back and see the benefit of not spending that money. He doesn't have the ability to look around at the temptations of the toys that are on the shelves all around him and to say, you know what, it's better for me not to give in to the temptation of something less, but to hold out for something better. And as men, we need to make sure that we're not like a nine-year-old in a toy store when it comes to making decisions in our lives. We need to make sure that we're willing to, to let go of our own agenda. Adjust course if we need to adjust course. To see that our Heavenly Father, who may at times be telling us, you know what, this isn't the best path for you. There's something better for you. Wait. Stay where you are. I realize this may be a a quick jolt of satisfaction for you right now, but this is not what's best for you. So we need to be men who are willing to submit our plans, our agenda, our ambitions, our goals, our needs to the Lord and to follow after his agenda for us. In order to do that, we have to start, yeah, back at number one. We have to start by seeking his will, seeking the counsel of others, praying specifically. We need to be doing all of those things. And we need to be involved in one another's lives to sharpen each other, to be involved beyond answering small group questions together, but to be involved intimately with one another, to, to pray with one another, to encourage one another, to build one another up. So we see this leader in Joab who was so obsessed with his own agenda that he took matters into his own hand. That's not a leader that any of us want to be or a leader that any of us want to follow. We want to follow a man like David, 
a man who wouldn't touch the throne without first seeking the Lord's timing and will, a man who wouldn't be dissuaded or discouraged by opposition, but kept on leading towards the Lord, confident in his sovereignty, and to follow a man who knew that the best choice was to make sure that he submitted all of his goals, ambitions, desires, dreams, and agendas to the Lord's agenda first and foremost. But leadership like this, like we've been talking about, doesn't come through compartmentalizing. In other words, that's, here's what I mean by that. It doesn't come from one sermon. It doesn't come from a sermon series. It doesn't come from a podcast. It doesn't come from a stack of the best leadership books out there. Leadership like this comes from beginning with what we looked at last week, and that is a fear of God. A fear of God that first anchors us to him in a commitment of trust that begins with that gospel relationship that we have with him through Christ. But then that fear of God continues to inform our lives to make sure that we are striving to make sure that we are not making a miscalculation like the the Mars orbiter or like the vassal worship or the trains in France, but that we are always calibrating our lives to the will of God with every single step that we take. That comes from a man who fears the Lord so that that will produce in us a commitment to seeking his will, to staying his course, into surrendering to his agenda. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for a man like David. We thank you for the contrast even that we see between David and Joah. God, we're thankful for faithful leaders that we've been able to see in our own lives. Lord, I pray that we would be able to see these traits and emulate them and strive to pattern our lives after them. God, may we be men who are eager and zealous at every turn to seek your, your will. May that be something that we don't wait on and, and react by seeking your will, but that proactively, daily, hourly, we are always in prayer to you, dependent upon you, seeking your will for everything that comes our way. And Lord, we know we'll face opposition. We live in a world that hates you, as Jesus said in John 17. God, I pray that as we face opposition, that we wouldn't be derailed, but that we would continue entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly, that we would continue to remain faithful and seeking your will, that we would continue to do what we know to be right, that we would take that other step forward. And Lord, I pray that we would be men who set aside our own personal vendettas, ambitions, greed, and agendas, and submit them to you and submit ourselves to your agenda. Lord, use us in one another's lives to lovingly speak truth, sometimes hard truths, to each other. And God, may we be humble enough to receive them and adjust course if we need to adjust course, knowing that it's the best thing to be following lockstep with you. God, may we be those men. In Christ's name.